You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's up, y'all? Hey, Kyle. Kyle, that was like the most radio voicey introduction I think you've done. I mean, like, that was like a deep, yeah. like, like, the intonation was like right on. Have you been practicing that? Yeah, you know, um, I wanted to open up by going, it's Thursday, August 4th, 2022. <laughs> uh, and, and today's episode of Knowing Faith. Um, uh, but I didn't. I didn't do that. Uh, you know, I wanted to, 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 you know, model that introduction after another famous podcaster, but I did not do that. Um, uh, I do have an update, though. I have an update on <laughs> the Chick-fil-A spicy chicken biscuit. Tell now, us. last season in the Q&A, I, I talked a lot about the spicy chicken biscuit. And because I'd had it that morning and in one of the episodes, I just started talking about how like it was incredible. Why have we not had this? What was the holdup on the spicy chicken biscuit? We already had the spicy chicken sandwich. Well, the people cried out to me. They, they messaged me. Many people who work with Chick-fil-A, but one person in particular who's a member of my church named Philip. He's a proprietor or, or uh, operator Owner of Chick-fil-A. Owner-operator. Sorry. Sorry, Philip. Owner-operator of Chick-fil-A. He's a member of Mosaic. Great guy. Great family. And we had them over for dinner this summer. And he was like, a lot of people messaged me and my wife about your Chick-fil-A comments. <laughs> and he was like, I can explain it to you. So, I don't know if you know this, but I'm about to, I might be about to blow your mind, okay? Evidently, and I also I probably should have checked that none of this is proprietary information. <laughs> I'm just going to go with it. Uh, I, I haven't disclosed Philip's last name, so he's, you mm-hmm. know, uh, this this won't hold up in the court safe. of law. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, but evidently the spicy chicken biscuit was already available in regions across the country. Like it already existed out there, but we just recently got it because Chick-fil-A regions have to vote on what's on their menu because of like bulk ordering of the supplies for a region. So it wasn't that there was a delay in the spicy chicken tech. That was my problem. I thought, was the technology not there for the spicy Mm -hmm, chicken biscuit mm -hmm, in the way that mm -hmm. it was? Did we, did we need innovation to get the Mm -hmm. spicy chicken biscuit? The answer is no. What we needed was a vote, a majority vote in our region, and we got it. And so we have received the the, the manna from heaven that is the spicy chicken. Does that blow your mind? People around this country were out there eating the spicy chicken biscuit. I, li- I was in total ignorance of it. And then it came to us like a word from heaven. I have learned another thing. There's another thing we need to get the vote. We need to rally the voters around because apparently you can order the Mac – with bacon bits. What? But not everywhere. You can oh, get so Chick-fil-A telling- Mac and they will put bacon bits on it. Seriously. But not everywhere. The bacon bits from the salads? I don't know. Interesting. But Do you, I is recently it, is it did available a thread. To us? I don't I don't know. Okay. okay. I haven't checked yet. I did but know I'm about just saying, this if region you're- thing, Kyle, but that was something I already knew about. I, that was because I lived I here and you guys had stuff we didn't have. We had stuff you didn't have. And I so I knew about yeah. that. Can I, while we're on Chick Fil A, can I just say one more thing? Maybe, maybe the Kathy family's listening. I'm so thankful for Chick Fil A, <laughs> as you guys know. They're not actually a sponsor of the show. <laughs> I know, but honestly, if you want to, we'll give you guys a great rate. I'm gonna be honest. Oh my Here. gosh! Free Chick Fil A for a year, something like that. Yep. Hook us up. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not asking for that. I need. I mean, and I feel like I need before I, I give a level a small criticism. You guys. 
Kyle and Jen, you know how much I love Chick-fil-A. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so much. when I was in Florida, we would go three to four. This is, I mean, Knowing Faith technically was born at Chick-fil-A. I agree with of, that. That's a good assessment. So like we're we're all in on Chick-fil-A. The orders that I the order that I typically make is a spicy number two, no pickles, with a large fry, well done. Because oh, here it goes. Oh, I, we, I, yeah. I'm not I'm not yes. angry about this. I'm, not, I'm trying to take some. I'm, I'm saying there is the perfect that is coming. I'm not mad. I'm not. Oh I'm just saying. I, and I get four ranches. And guys, I need you to know I changed my sauce order. I no longer get the buffalo sauce. Wow. No. I get the Texas Pete sauce. And I put it in the ranch, and it is – it's again, it's just – I'm just continuing. I mean, Enneagram 1, I can't help but make things slightly better every time I try it. Oh, gosh. It's just what I – Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's what I do. Can we – can we either – it's one of two options. Make sure that our French fries are not soggy. That just, just done normally, they're soggy fries. They just are. Their fries are overrated, which is why I order them well done. They have a new policy that will not allow you to order well done fries at the Chick-fil-A that I go to and at like the five others I've tried. So I'm, I'm no longer getting fries. I'll get a spicy chicken sandwich and I'll get like some extra nuggets or something like that. Mac. You need to go for the Mac. It's With bacon. Delightful. See, solution. With bacon. Problem solved. Well, solved your problems. And, and Quit complaining and order the Mac. And do you know what I like to put in the Mac? The buffalo sauce. Oh, I bet that is good. Yeah, everybody says everybody said to put, um, and you know how I feel about the banter, so yeah. we're going to need to wrap this up. But everybody <laughs> said to put the nugs in the mac with the buffalo sauce. Yeah, oh, that's, yeah. That's, that's that's the way to do it. That's speaking of God the Son. Yeah. Okay. So on today's <laughs> episode, <laughs> that, how we transition. That was the Holy Trinity of Chick Fil A. <laughs> Did you catch that? Yeah. We also, yeah, we, yeah, the Holy we also Trinity just, of Chick Fil A. Well, just to wrap it up, we'll just say, hey, Chick Fil A. Holler at us. Uh, We're grateful for this, boy. We're grateful. <laughs> if you send me a shirt, a hat, I'll wear it on the show. Stop I, right a, now. Okay. Talk um, about Jesus before yeah. it's too late. <laughs> well, we are in uh, the second episode on three episodes on uh, the kind of focusing on the distinction of persons. God the Father last week, God the Son this week, and we'll cover God the Holy Spirit with Dr. Greg Allison, longtime friend of the show, frequent guest, uh, and uh, theologian. Uh, who's written widely on the Holy Spirit. He'll be on with us next week. But this week, we're going to talk about God the Son. Uh, And this is crucial, right? Because when we're talking about who the Son of God is, we are talking about what is kind of square one of introduction to the Christian faith, which is encountering uh, who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. So this Mm -hmm. is a pretty significant thing. It's one of those things where Christology, the doctrine of the Son of God, the study of Christ the King, who he is and what he has done, um, Christology is one of those doctrines that like is often in a basic kind of elementary form, appropriately so, the front door of entrance into the Christian faith. Most people, when they're coming into faith, are coming into faith because of a captivating witness of the Spirit uh, as Scripture and as a person testify concerning the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But it also holds true that Christology uh, is one of the most substantive doctrines. So no surprise there. The front door to the Christian faith is often one of the uh, deepest mines of theological diamonds that you're going to find in the whole of Christian faith. And so we're going to look at God the Son today. We're going to dive a little bit deeper than we have in past seasons as we've covered uh, this in different directions. But let's just start with kind of a big, broad question just to get the juices going. And I do want us to get more technical here than we have in the past. So 
keep, you know, keep us honest. Uh, but let's keep it. I want, I want to try to dive deep into some of these things and we are going to hit some topics that I think are pretty crucial, but can feel technical. So when we refer to God, the son, we refer to him as the second person of the Godhead. Let's just start big picture. Does this mean he's in second place? Does this mean God the Son is somehow lesser than God the Father? He's the second person of the Godhead. If he were really that great, he'd be the first person of the Godhead. Why is that not true? Why is why is that did language you, did you not— Did you leave us off by saying we're going to get more technical and then ask a first and second place question? That feels really nuanced. I did. I said we're going to go technical. We're starting broad. I let the record show. But uh, if it's so simple, then just go ahead and hit, one of you hit me with it, right? Go ahead and lead off. He is in second place, but not second place in the way that we normally talk about it. It's not second place in terms of hierarchy, as if somebody won the first place ribbon and somebody won the second place ribbon, or one is more God and one is second God. So we want to make sure that we steer clear of any hierarchical distinctions between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Or, or any kind of communication that would, would insist that God the Father is more God-like than God the Son, or that God the Son is, is kind of like God, but a little bit less than God, than, than God the Father. But he is in second place in terms of order. And so we'll talk about that technically of, he is not the first person of the Godhead, and that's important for us to say he is the second person of the Godhead, and the Holy Spirit is the third person. But again, that doesn't make the Holy Spirit less than, it just gives him a place of order within the three persons. It might be good for us just to highlight that first definition that we did last week with, uh, with God the Father mm-hmm. about the Trinity, and that helps us think about each of these persons. God eternally exists as one essence in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So Trinitarianism is rightly emphasizing that God is one. God eternally exists as one essence. There are three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, each of whom is fully God. So when you ask the question, is God second place? Our definition would say, no, he can't be second place, but he is the second person in the Godhead. Yeah. You helped me, JT. Like until I met JT, it never occurred to me that the reason they're called the first, second, or third person of the Trinity had any reasoning to it. I thought it was just a way that we kept it Mm -hmm. straight. Um, It didn't occur to me that there was a logic to it. And like, I think you walked us through that logic. Can you say it again, JT? Yeah. So in last week, when we talked about God the Father, we talked about him being the fountain of divinity. That doesn't mean that God the Son wasn't created or was created. We're going to get into that. He wasn't created. But it does mean, and John 5.26 says this, that that God the Father granted that the Son would have eternal life in himself. So the Son's life never comes into being, but it is sourced in God the Father. But Mm -hmm. it's something that happens eternally. Mm -hmm. And the technical term that we'll use, and maybe I'm getting ahead of Kyle here, but it's that he's eternally begotten or eternally sent, the one who is sent by the Father. So the order is God the Father, all things come from him. In God the Son, all things are accomplished through him. In God the Holy Spirit, all things are in or applied by him. And so that's the order that we typically talk about between Father, Son, and Spirit. Yeah, and in that order, we're talking through these – we introduced this language last week uh, to talk about the relations between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, we talked about the Father as eternally unbegotten, um, the Son as eternally begotten, and, uh, and we'll talk next week is in terms of the spirit as eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Now, when you think about those that language, eternally unbegotten, eternally begotten, and eternally proceeding, you might wonder, like, well, where does that language come from? Well, it comes from Scripture. 
there's there, uh, the language in the Gospels, particularly around uh, the relation of the Son to the Father and the Spirit and the relationship of the Spirit to the Father and the Son, um, that language is used, the procession language and the begotten language, to try to communicate the filial relationship that the Father has with the Son and the Son has with the Father, uh, and the... Oh, I want to say the spiritual relationship um, or the spirating relationship that the spirit has with the father and the son. Uh, and we're going to get into that more with Dr. Allison next week. But for this week, when we talk about eternally unbegotten, uh, we talk about the eternal generation of the son. Why is this so crucial for us? When we talk about from where and when has God the son come, JT, you just said a minute ago that uh, scripture, uh, that, that Jesus, the son of God, or excuse me, the son of God was never created. The son of God was never created. But doesn't Colossians 1 Jen, say that he's the firstborn over all creation? Yeah. So if Colossians 1 says he's the firstborn over all creation, and you just told me, well, he was never created, but Scripture's saying he's the firstborn, well, that seems like you're saying something different from what Scripture says. Well, clearly, Kyle, that means the Bible can't be trusted. <laughs> well, that's that's what I thought you'd say. Well, we're done here. Yeah. Um, uh, th- hope you enjoy yeah. the discussion. Grace and peace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, this is, I've had some conversations recently with um, one of my colleagues about how much of our trouble with reading scripture has to do with our lack of an appreciation for the poetic ways in which language is regularly employed. And when we talk about um, the language of firstborn overall creation, that's, that's, a metaphor. It is, it's poetic language to help us to understand something that is true about our relationship to God in a way that we might not otherwise. But this is a good example of how if you take something literally over the way it's intended to be heard, literally, you can begin to draw conclusions that you shouldn't or begin to question if the Bible knows what it's doing. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah, I'd also highlight that in that specific uh, in First Corinthians, sorry, Colossians chapter one, verse fifteen to twenty, it actually technically is poetic language. In all likelihood, this is an early church hymn or psalm that was sung mm-hmm. that Paul is mm-hmm. appropriating from the church of Colossae that they would have known, and he's putting it in theologically. But right before, right before, it says that he is the firstborn. Uh, and again, it's not in all of creation; it's over all of creation. It says that over. he is mm-hmm. the image of the invisible God, which again is what gives us the order. He's the image of the Father, the one who, who who sent him. In verse 16, for everything was created by him. He yeah. isn't creation. Everything mm-hmm. was created by him in mm-hmm. heaven and on earth, visible and invisible thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities. All things have, be, have been created through him. And not just that he's the creator, they were created for him. Yeah, yeah. That this elevates mm-hmm. the Son of God and the person of Jesus Christ in this instance above all of created things. Which so Paul is not saying, isn't aren't we so glad that we have this human example in Jesus that is the firstborn? He's saying he is God. He is the one who created all things and the one through whom all all things subsist and have their being. Yeah, that's right. And you know the whole passage here is dealing with the uh, or, or Paul making the compelling case that Christ, the Son of God, is preeminent above all things. That's the whole flow right. of First mm-hmm. Corinthians one fifteen through twenty. And the reality is, is that when we hear firstborn language in the uh, in a global Western culture, we primarily think of like uh, create like the idea of just being the first one who was biologically born. 
Firstborn language in the ancient right. world was language of birthright. It was language of preeminence. Yes. So to say firstborn, prototokos, the Greek word behind it, Whoa. isn't uh, isn't to immediately go, hey, the, the emphasis here isn't on the he was born. The emphasis is that he is the uh, the f- preeminent child of God, the preeminent son of God, and all of the other family members who enter into fellowship with God enter in with him as the central, supreme, preeminent child, son. And it's really, it's not just birthright. Like for those who remember the story of Jacob and Esau, right? It's birthright and blessing. And so this is why when you get to Revelation, what do you hear said, um, you know, about the Lamb? Blessing and honor, glory and power be unto Him. That's, that's in, in, in many ways can be thought of as the Father's blessing that is on the Son um, being articulated by those who are extolling Him. I think that's kind of cool. So uh, what does it mean to say then that God the Son is eternally begotten? We're talking about this a little bit. So if he's not created, because early on in the in the life of the early church, Arius comes out of First Corinthians, or, or excuse me, Colossians one, uh, fifteen, and he he's coming to the the uh, the leaders of the church saying, "Look, there was a time in which God the Son was not. He is the first of all creation. He's the first created being, and so he's making an argument that the Son of God was." created, that he was preeminent in being the first of that which was created, but he is created nonetheless. And in response to that, the early church is very quick to, well, I should say very quick. That's actually would be incorrect. The early church has to deal with Arius and they have to deal with him with a degree of confidence and certainty. So Athanasius, many of the early church fathers are arguing against Arius's wrong view here that no, he was not created, but he is eternally begotten of the father. What is that language for then, JT? If it's not for he was created and they're answering Arius using begotten language, what are they trying to say? What are they not trying to say? Yeah, and I just want to highlight for a second here, this wasn't just some random guy who was like preaching on a random street corner, saying a few things wrong about Jesus. This guy was like a bishop. I mean, he he was very well known in the early church, very prominent. He was actually even writing songs, perpetuating this heresy, the heresy of, of what we would call like subordinationism. And the early church, if we're throwing out some Greek terms, argued that the son of God was homo usios, which means of the same essence. And Arius said, well, I mean, I'm close to that, but it's actually that he is home oi with an I, usios, that he is of like substance or of like essence. So he would, this is important, Arius preached Christ-centered sermons. Arius worshiped Jesus. Arius believed that Jesus was like God, but he did not believe that he was God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And there are a lot of well-meaning evangelicals who would actually are, if you look at Ligonier and Lifeways studies and Barna studies that kind of take the temperature of evangelical theology, I think it's like the last I saw 40 to 46% of evangelicals unknowingly perpetuate the heresy of Arianism, which is to subordinate God the Son to God the Father. That isn't to call them heretics. It is to say that they are most likely heterodox, unknowingly teaching things that are wrong, 
But, but that is what makes us so important because Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. To get the exact quote right from John chapter 5, verse 26, John writes this. He says, For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he granted to the Son to have life in himself. The early church and Augustine later in the 4th century takes this verse in particular, takes the rest of Colossians, takes statements in, in at the beginning of John that this is the logos, that he is God from God, light from light, that or Jesus' statements of like, before Abraham was, I am of giving the unique divine identity of the God of Israel to the Son of God and then in the incarnation to Jesus himself. And we've talked about this a little bit before in the podcast. I'm going to introduce, if we're going technical, a category. We are. I almost yeah. wish we had like a, a whiteboard for this, but I, we don't. <laughs> uh, but we could now that we have cameras. Um, you totally could. Next time. I mean, next time I'm coming, I'm coming loaded with a, with a whiteboard <laughs> and all kinds of colors and Venn diagrams and little beautiful mind over here. Uh, you guys will cancel me quick. Uh, there is the way that the church has thought about this is the only access that we have to what God is like is what we would call uh, ad extra or God in his actions. That's Genesis to Revelation. We know that God has eternally existed, mm-hmm. but ad extra or in his actions, he has he has acted. That is the actions of creation, the actions mm-hmm. of revelation, the action of of sustaining his universe, preserving us, sending us Jesus, acting in the world. But there's also the life that God has in himself. That's called ad intra. And we want to think about what is the relationship between Mm -hmm. how God acts in the world to how God is in himself. And what we see in the Bible is that the Father never sends himself. He is eternally unsent. And this is where we start having Christophany debates. No, it's not. It's not. We're not doing that. But the Father is never sent. He, he, never, he never descends. He doesn't die on the cross for us. But what we see in Scripture is that he does send the Son. This is uh, the, the beginning of the Gospels, that the Son of God, the promised Messiah, is the one who's sent by the Father. So we stop right there and say, okay, add extra, in history, God the Father sends God the Son. What does that then therefore mean for the life that has always or eternally existed in God? If the Son is begotten or sent in redemptive history, he must be eternally sent or eternally begotten in ad intra or in God's life in himself. So then we think about what's the relationship between Father and Son? The Father is eternally unsent and the Son is eternally sent. Uh, So we're thinking, here's what God does in the world. This must be what God is like in himself. Yes. And, and how um, how does this uh, shape the way that we talk about uh, God the Son? Like when we think about the fact that the relations are a reflection of the unique – I'm going to introduce another word here um, – the unique appropriations – or the the uh, the acts that are uh, uniquely tied to the work of the persons. So, for example, we've said this before in the podcast. It's not appropriate to thank God the Father for dying on the cross, right? But it can be said mm-hmm. that on the cross, God the Son died, right? Am I am I off here, mm-hmm. JT? I mean, this language gets really tricky. You're not <laughs> off here. Uh, I, I would I would be comfortable hearing that preached from a pulpit. So, like, we want to say God the Father didn't die on the cross, but Acts, what is it, 20, I'm getting the verse wrong, 
talks about the the blood of God being shed. And so like there is mm-hmm. this strange appropriation of language. strange. Mm-hmm. It's actually very logical, but it can be hard for our minds to uh, like our, our ideas to kind of grasp exactly what the Bible is saying. So the father does not die on the cross. The son does die on the cross, but he dies on the cross in 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 the form of Jesus Christ. So this is one of the things that can get really tricky for people. Mm-hmm. So I want to see if I can simplify it. When we talk about ad and ad intra, God in himself or ad extra, God the Son takes upon a human nature in Jesus. So when we are talking about God the Son in the Gospels, we're talking about one person who now has two natures. The nature of God cannot die because God eternally exists, but he can't experience a human death in God in God the Son via the nature of Jesus yeah. via the, na- the via the human nature, and that means that God experiences a real, infinite human death—the death that substitutes. So maybe even to back up a little bit, mm-hmm. the primary feature that the early church was thinking through to elevate not not to elevate, but to rightly rightly articulate that God the Son is God Himself. It was all around salvation. How can we be right, saved? Right, 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 right. Like that was their mm-hmm. question. It wasn't just like mm-hmm. like Trinitarianism ultimately is a question of how does God save us? And can right. we experience redemption and eternal life in him? Mm-hmm. And their their point was is God cannot save if God the Son is not fully God. Because he yeah. can't he can't substitute himself mm-hmm. and pay the appropriate price of infinite death because of our sin. And so for them, a lot of this is salvific, a salvific question. Yeah, I'm thinking of the Athanasius quote, and I think it's from On the Incarnation. Mm-hmm. Is it that which God has not assumed, God has not saved? That's exactly right. Um, and so I do think that that's a crucial part of it. What I'm thinking through, though, is that oftentimes w- there's this balance. We've talked about inseparable operations, mm-hmm. that which any person of the Godhead does that God uh, is rightly attributed to God, right? Like that there is a sense in which God always works in full concert with the one will of God. Like the Father, the Son, and the Spirit aren't out there like competing. There aren't multiple wills in God. There aren't, you know, it's like, no, there is one will of God and it is working. Can I just pause you there for a second? Just last night I was on Instagram doing some deep theological research (laughs) and an apologetics (laughs) blog came up, like just in the search function. And I, I'm not. I'm not trying to put anybody. Like I'm. Not, I'm gonna. I'm gonna say a name here. Um, I think that he is uh, an evangelical theologian, and I'm grateful for his ministry in a number of ways. But he said something really problematic that I. I I'm just trying to highlight. Like what we're doing right now is not like dancing on the pin of, of, of a needle. Like even us or an angel. Like this is highly, highly important. There's a theologian named William Lane Craig. He's an apologist, and he was arguing. That in the early church there was two views about I the saw will. this same. You and I are on the same <laughs> algorithm. <laughs> Golly, I was gonna say this. Ex- I was gonna say this exact what same thing. Golly, man. All right, okay, we keep going. I'm sorry. And again, I'm not. This is what we do on knowing faith. Is not. We're not trying to. This isn't a shot across the brow. This is like just to say like. This, this this video had like thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of views, and it's, he's teaching the church something that the church has denied for 2,000 years or 1,700 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the early church, there was a view called monothelitism, that is one will, that that God the Son and God – or Jesus, the person, has one will. It was a, It was a view that was denied because if you attribute willingness to person, you – automatically assume that then there are three wills in God, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
what what the monothelites did is they said, well, he has one will, and they take language language like, well, not my will, but yours be done, and and therefore put eternal submission or eternal subordination onto God the Son, even in the eternal Godhead, which right. is entirely problematic because if you have two wills, you have two gods. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what the diothelites did is they said that, no, 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 in the incarnation, there are two wills in Christ because he has two natures. There is the divine will and there is the human will. So Jesus can rightly say before Abraham was, I am, and I don't know the day or the hour, only the father knows, because there are genuinely two natures within this one mm-hmm. person. You might say to yourself, well, that sounds like an anomaly. Yes, it's called the incarnation of the Son of God. Like It's only happened once. We are saying this is the most unique thing in all of human history. And to assume that it's like everything else in the world is to say that it's no longer a miracle. And, yeah. and so what, what Craig unwillingly does is that he's not a tritheist. He's not. No, he's not. But that the logic would follow of tritheism, of there being three gods within the Godhead that are not one in essence, but distinct in essence and nature. And that is highly problematic. Yes. Is that how you would, would, would push back, Kyle? Oh, exactly. That's problematic. It, like, I, I, I thought, oh, man, I, I can't wait to drop in this very relevant <laughs> illustration that I just saw on Instagram, and you literally did it. Man, we are on the same way. So last night we were watching, Macy and I were watching some TV and I was just, is when it came up and I, Macy's done the, the, the Institute three times now. So I like had her come over and I was like, tell me what's wrong with this video. And she got it. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, I love being married to you. Welcome to a night in the English household, just you know, refuting uh, Christological heresies on our couch with 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 joy. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Is it problematic that my algorithm shows me decorating accounts and pug videos? It, it's actually problematic. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, in this day and age, everything is problematic. It turns out. Um, but this is in our cultural engagement podcast. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your copy today. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your copy today. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Yeah, you know, I do think that one of the interesting things about, um, you know, we're, we're already kind of going in this direction, but I, I, it's significant to talk about this. Um, there has been a, a, uh, a lot of influence on evangelical theology in the last 30 years uh, or so um, 
one of the most significant systematic theology works uh, of the last 50 years. I, I wouldn't say significant in ter- necessarily in terms of like uh, the caliber it was batting at, but significant in terms of reach, um, reach. Mm-hmm. Uh, has certainly influenced what many Christians in our churches uh, think of when they think of the Son of God and his relationship to God the Father. And because of this, uh, I routinely find people, and I'm not just talking about scholars, I'm not talking about seminary folks, I'm talking about just people in the life of our church or in the life of the church in North Texas who their, their kind of understanding of the Son of God is that the Son of God has eternally been willing to submit or subordinate himself, his will, to that of the Father. And this is sometimes, JT's mentioned subordinationism, sometimes it's referred to as eternal functional subordinationism. It's a form of social Trinitarianism. Social Trinitarianism, it is a form of social, we've talked about uh, economic and ontological views of the Trinity, but social Trinitarianism, which has been fairly popular in kind of more— I think you'd argue more popular than the traditional historic view, and at least in American evangelicalism. Yeah, listen, I, yes, I would say that's the case for sure. Certainly since, like if, if I lined up 20 preachers, like in evangelicalism, to preach a sermon on the Trinity, I'd wager I'd get a plus 60% social yes. Trinitarian teaching out of those 20 teachers. Which, we're, again, we're not saying—we're we're saying is highly problematic— yeah, it's not good. I'm not saying those people would be duplicitous, deceptive, no, malevolent, not. malicious, uh, mal- malicious, uh, <laughs> not a word, uh, malicious. <laughs> That's a Disney character. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, they certainly w- wouldn't be Maleficent. Uh, uh, you know, existing <laughs> Disney IP, which we're not going to get into uh, for legal reasons. But <laughs> TM. Yeah, Disney. TM Disney. Yeah. Uh, we don't want to come under suit. But uh, yeah, social Trinitarianism <laughs> has been very popular. And when you think about social Trinitarianism, you think, okay, here's what happens in the flow of social Trinitarianism using ad intra, ad extra language. You have uh, mm-hmm. people looking at the economic activity of God in the world, ad That's extra, right. God's work in the world. They look at the activity of God in the world and they say, okay, this is what God is. Just the way that it played out here, the way that it looks, that's who God is. So basically the mm-hmm. economic trinity is the substance of, of the imminent Trinity or th- what we see ad extra is what God is ad intra. I would say at this point though, all Trinitarian theologians would agree with what you just said, not just social Trinitarians. Well, but they wouldn't necessarily say that it is right. They would say that it's a reflection of. Uh, yeah. It's a reflection of, but the, the challenge is specifically around the incarnation around two natures. What nature yes. are you appropriating to the eternal nature of God. Yeah. That's that's yeah. where the rubber meets the road. Yes. Because like we want to say that like Colossians 1.15 is right. He is the image of the invisible God. Right. Like it, that God the Son is God. John 5.26. He has life in himself. So we don't want to we don't want to say that God is not like that. It was just merely a reflection. We say that's what God is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think I'm with you here. Um, I think I'm with you here. I think that the concern as I've engaged with social Trinitarianism is that it's one thing to say that it's a perfect revelation of who God is, which it is. Uh, everything that God does in the world is a perfect revelation of who God is. Is that, are we, are we together yes. so far? 
Yep. Okay. So everything God does in the world is a perfect revelation of who God is. Mm-hmm. And yet it's not necessarily the thing that substantiates God. Meaning God isn't merely his activity in the world. He's he, he's distinct from his activity in the world, though everything he does in the life of the world is a perfect revelation of who he is. Yeah, that's true. Okay. So like where like let's just give an example or give an example of where this could go wrong, Kyle. Like give an example well, of of how a social trinitarian might get this wrong. Uh, well, I think a lot of social trinitarianism ends up into open theism where you basically have God's uh God is active in the world in the same way that uh, his or his activity in the world is a demonstration of who he is. When we see God the Son acting in the world, there are times in which it appears that God the Son does not have full knowledge or that he is subject to uh pain or temptation. It appears that way. Ipso facto, God himself, God in his nature must be subject to pain or manipulation or change or unknowing or uncertainty. We're going to need we're going to need a little definition of open theism, please. Give us the Greek word, Kyle. I, I don't know that I can give us the I don't, Is there one Greek, no Okay, Greek I was about word. to say, "Oh, dang, it's like a pop quiz. Like, am I supposed to know the one Greek word for open theism?" Uh, I don't. Um, well, it's no, called open, theos. It's maleficent. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, let me give you a hatchet version. I'm sure that if I, you know, we're going to have on some professors from Midwestern, our sponsor for this season, and I'm sure Matthew Barrett's going to tell me how wrong this definition was. But I'll just give you a hatchet version. Open theism can broadly be the view that God is subject to uh, some of the creaturely limitations uh, or some of the operations of the world in ways that we are subject to, meaning uh, some of the entailments of this or like the branches on this rotten tree are like God doesn't know the future. Mm -hmm. God is subject to pain. God is subject to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, God is subject to, um, well, I don't want to get there because that'll open up a can of worms. But or like not even quite open theism. Like there's Jurgen Moltmann is one of the famous most famous uh, systematic theologians of the last uh, hundred hundred fifty years. He writes a book called The Crucified God, and the point is is that when we see Jesus die on the cross, we see the very nature of the Godhead. Yeah. dying. And so it's really taking one-to-one correlations of everything we would see and applying all of it to the nature and character of God. And that's something yeah. we would say we don't want to do. Because for example, when Jesus says, I don't know the day or the hour, does that mean that the divine isn't omniscient? Yeah. It, and it, it doesn't mean right. that. So basically, as we as we talk through the incommunicable attributes, we will be we will be tearing down any open yes. theism ideas that might have crept into the minds of our yeah. listeners. So then open theism connects to eternal functional subordination because, I'm just going to make sure I'm following your train of thought, because when we speak of the, if you say that the son is eternally subordinate to the father, then you are going beyond what we are to understand um, from the subordination of the son. In some sense, you're taking it too broadly. Well, and we should be clear, one, uh, open theism does not lead to EFS or EFS does not lead to open theism. They Most of these camps would actually be very different. We're just saying they make the same error. Yep. And it's the same error of appropriating okay. 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 Jesus's. It's, I mean, like, this is the simplest way I think we can say it. And if it doesn't make sense, sorry, we're lost. In the incarnation, <laughs> Jesus has two natures. Yep. He has a divine nature mm-hmm. and a human nature. And and it, it, he never separates the two. We always see the God-man acting. Jesus, the Lord, is the actor. 
But he says things like, I don't know the day or the hour. What we're saying is he's not saying that in his divine nature. He's saying it as human, but he's not saying it even in his nature. He's saying it as the person. And what what uh, social Trinitarians will do is they will overemphasize that to say, well, that must also mm-hmm. be true of the divine mm-hmm. nature. And they'll apply that back mm-hmm. eternally on the life that exists within God. Mm -hmm. So if we see Jesus submitting and Jesus is God, that must mean that the Son eternally submits. And we're saying that's a a category Mm -hmm. mistake. Yeah. Okay, that's very clarifying. Let me ask another question that I would think our listeners are thinking. You've talked about the Father being unsent and eternally unsent, and the Son being eternally sent. And I know we're going to talk about the Spirit in our next episode, but isn't the Spirit also, isn't the Spirit sent also? Like, what's the distinction between the eternally sent Son and the sending of the Spirit? The language that the Bible uses for the Spirit is, it's it communicates sent, because of course He's sent. Jesus tells His disciples, it's better for me to go mm-hmm. because I'm going to send you the paraclete, the comforter, the helper, who's going to come to guide you mm-hmm. into all truth. He's not going to speak on His own authority. He's going to speak what He hears me and the Father saying. But what, what Jesus says, He says, after I return to the Father, the Holy Spirit is going to be sent by the Father. He's going to be, He's going to proceed, is the language that Jesus uses, from the Father and mm-hmm. the Son. And so it's not just that he proceeds from mm-hmm. the Father. He proceeds from the Son. And that is really highly significant because the Spirit doesn't come to do his own ministry, as J.I. Packer would say. He comes with a spotlight ministry to be sent from the Father through the Son in order to make God the Son known to us. That's the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit. Not to make okay. himself known, but to to flood, a flash, a spotlight on who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Great. Yep. Okay. You know, so let's land the plane here. We 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 started broad. We dove technical. I, I thought we were still in the intro. I'm ready. I just was ready to get going. <laughs> <laughs> I want us. I want us to move to. We we've said this is incredibly significant. We've said that getting it wrong here is problematic. Why is it pastorally beneficial? Why is like what what is the glory of a true and accurate view of the son of god what why is that more glorious than a faulty view because the faulty views have always appealed and and, and i'll tell you this whether it's social trinitarianism in the mid 20th century or uh it's uh eternal functional subordinationism which has been used as a corollary or as an engine for a strain, though not all, of complementarianism, or it's Arius and the early church, the, the social views of Trinitarian relations uh, and social views of the Son of God have always appealed on pragmatic grounds. Like Arius is making an appeal that like, okay, this, it it, it makes more sense. It's more logical, right? The social Trinitarians are saying, hey, it emphasizes the people of God and community uh, and justice. Uh, The eternal functional subordination camp is saying, hey, it helps us to make sense of male-female relations. I feel like these views, these wrong views of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, always make their appeal on pragmatic grounds. Here is something practical we will get if we if we kind of uh, massage the historic view here why is this view not just more coherent with the witness of scripture and the testimony of the church why is this a better view why is this more beautiful why is it 
Why is it better? Why is this a better view of the Son of God than what's on offer elsewhere? We know what we're saying is our audience has heard us say it's more congruent with the witness of Scripture. It's more congruent with the witness of the church. And let's say they're with us on that. Why is it a better view? I mean, I think the simplest answer is I think it makes him more worthy of worship. I mean, this is really a matter of affections. And that isn't to say that social Trinitarians or eternal functional subordinationists don't have adoration and affection in their hearts. Of course. I I think they do. I I just think that when we think about what God has actually done for us in history, that God the Son himself, who's eternally existed in this filial relationship with God the Father, existing in this one will, one essence, one God, and how God has eternally subsisted as these these three persons, still sends God the Son to assume upon himself a human nature, which before we even get to the cross is an act of humility, an act of service, an act of of joyful obedience to the one will of God, and to, to put upon human flesh, to humble himself, to eat meals, to talk with sinners, to be with them, to touch them, to heal them, so that they could experience eternal life through his death, burial, and resurrection. I just think it's a matter of worship. I mean, Arius can't say God from God, light from light, true God from true God came to die and suffer from for, for our sins. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure if that resonates, but for me, it's just a matter. It's it's like wonder and awe. One, one of the things that we talked about when we teach the Institute Forge training program, whatever we call it, and we get on these lessons, is we talk about how heresy always seeks to deny the tension that Scripture demands, yep. and the tension that Scripture demands ought to lead us in wonder and awe and worship. And I think the social Trinitarians, the eternal functional subordinationists, tend to deny the tension that Scripture demands, which removes, for me, some of the awe and wonder of who God is and what he's accomplished for us. Yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. well said. I think that's well said. I got one more thing, Yeah, even though Kyle's trying to land the plane. Okay. In terms of getting out of balance on who we honor in the Trinity, we might forget to honor God the Father, and we might forget to honor God the Spirit, but rarely is God the Son the one who falls off our radar. Mm -hmm. Is there anything to be cautious about? Like, what happens if we talk too much about God the Son, or is that even possible? Yeah, you know what? We actually would get this question when we were teaching on Trinitarianism and Christology in the training program, Institute Forge, whatever. And it's a common question. Like, could we be too emphatic uh, about God the Son to the detriment? And I think that what we're finding, even when we think about uh, Hebrews, I think about Hebrews 1. This is where I typically go whenever I hear a question like that. And I think it's a good question. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This sounds a little bit like the end of Philippians 2, uh, or I'm sorry, the Philippians 2, Mm -hmm. 1 through 11. He's been given the name that it's it's above every other name. And at that name, every knee shall bow, every tongue Mm -hmm. confess. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, right? So like... I do think that even the witness of Scripture is telling us that the centerpiece of God's revelation, God, the the whole Godhead, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The centerpiece of all that revelation, the, the culmination, the focus is rightly on the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so the Father is 
rightly revealing at the right time the majesty of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the Spirit is testifying to that, not just when he sent at Pentecost, but all throughout the witness of Scripture. And so in that way, I think that it is very commensurate. It's right that when we're emphatic about the about the Godhead, when we're emphatic about God, that much of our worship and praise and adoration is explicitly tied to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, because that does seem to be both the aim and the reflection on uh, on the Son of God in Scripture, I, I think. I, think. I would say it real similar. I think that's really well said, Kyle. We used to call it, and it's been called by others before us, Christocentric Trinitarianism, that the very natures of Father, Son, and Spirit, or the very persons, of better, better said, of Father, Son, and Spirit, are to highlight God the Son, that he is the image of the invisible God and the one that the Spirit is supposed to, to tell us about and to show us. Now, let me be clear. The, the fatherhood of God is essential. We are adopted yeah. sons and daughters. The, the the spirit of God is essential. We are the temple. He makes his dwelling among us, and we need to be dependent upon him, reliant upon him, walking in his gifts and walking in the fruit of the spirit. All of those things are true, but all of them are meant to be Christ-centered. So like putting flesh on this, if I visit a church that's like worshiping Jesus, Jesus is saving people, the Bible is being preached, Jesus is being exalted, clearly Jesus is, and like we're not talking about like kind of the, the you know, the cultural Jesus. I'm saying like Jesus is honored, Jesus is worship, he's, he's active, he's present and living. Mm-hmm. And I hear somebody say, we just need more of the spirit. I'm like, what are you talking about? <sighs> The Holy Spirit is here saving people and giving Jesus honor and giving Jesus glory and highlighting and exalting Jesus. That is what the Spirit does. And for you to say that you've forgotten the Holy Spirit, I think is I think the Holy Spirit is there saying like, what are you talking about? Look, look at what I'm doing in your midst. I'm saving people and giving honor to the Son upon whom all honor, glory, and praise is given. I totally agree. I think those were great explanations. I think sometimes the way it rolls down to the person in the pews is, all I need is Jesus. And so I think one of the things that 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 is both true and untrue. You know, it's yes. like you have to un, you have to and I think that's why a discussion of the Trinity is so important because Jesus yeah. is not all you got. That's right. You got Father, Son and Spirit and each is um serving a particular purpose in your redemption, in your sanctification. And so um I think that's kind of where I'm like we want to talk about the Son, and I love that you took us to Hebrews. That's one of my favorite passages, Kyle. Um, but I do think if we are not careful to talk about these other aspects of the Trinity, people can get an overly simplistic idea I agree. Of, of what it means to um, to just give me Jesus. I agree. And I, I think, you know, Jen, on your point, I, 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 the Son of God is not all we get with God, but the Son of God is where right. we get all that God has for, for yeah. us. So the Son of God is not all we get. The Son mm-hmm. of God, though, is where we get fellowship with God the Father and the indwelling right. presence of the Holy Spirit. It's That's not right. all that we get, but it is where we get mm-hmm. all that God has for us. That's really well said, Kyle. That was so good. Well, I'm learning from the Master. Are you telling us we shouldn't sing in Christ alone anymore? <laughs> I, <laughs> I hope yeah, not. I want us to stop singing that. What a terrible, terrible song. Shout out to the Gettys. <laughs> um, Such a good song. Uh, it is. Uh, hey, listen, thank you for joining our conversation. Next episode, we're going to be with uh, Dr. Greg Allison uh, talking through the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And there's really nobody better that we would want to do that with than him, friend of the show. So tune in for that. You can find Knowing Faith on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We're out there. Leave us a review on 
Apple Podcasts. And when you do, leave a question for us. We'll take those into consideration in our Q&A episodes at the end of the season. If you want episodes ad-free or if you want some other cool features or if you want video recordings of episodes, you can go to patreon.com slash training the church. You can find out everything that you'd want and more over there. Don't miss our sister podcast, the Family Discipleship Podcast with Adam Griffin, Chelsea Griffin, and Cassie Bryant. They have some great guests on this season with a brand new show, Confronting Christianity, that's co-hosted by me and Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, We hope you enjoy the discussion. Grace and peace.